Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Space of democracy. Very good. G'day, Mark Kenny here from ANU's Australian Studies Institute. Today I want to talk about two things, post-Trump America and what we've learned about how different Joe Biden's presidency is and what that means in the US and globally. And secondly, what Australia's attitude to peril tells us about ourselves as individuals, but perhaps more importantly, about the condition of our social fabric. And I've got the perfect person to cover both topics. Before that, though, cast your mind back 18 months to the creation of a new national cabinet, so-called. Whatever its questionable legal basis, it certainly set the tone from the top, suggesting this actually is an emergency. Public confidence in government in Australia rebounded for the first time in years. Last week, the Victorian state government announced around one and a quarter million authorised workers will have to be vaccinated in order to continue operating, a vast number of occupations with direct public interface. This in a state that has suffered the most aggressive pushback from a roiling minority. Meanwhile, other states are at different stages of response, from preparing to let it rip to something akin to the Hermit Kingdom. The National Plan, as we all know, stipulates opening up should begin from 70% and move through to a new kind of normal at 80% vaccination. Although uniquely in the world, Australia pretends its under-16s don't exist, which means our vaccination triggers are actually 56% and 64% respectively. But unlike a war, the way politicians and media have handled the vaccination question has been, in my view, somewhat tremulous. Even before we knew for sure that there would be a vaccine, there was a fair bit of talk from government and epidemiologists about a likely hesitancy problem. And to my mind, far too much credence was given to the notion of personal choice. Basically, the idea of mandatory vaccination was never properly debated. I suspect this non-leadership invited, or at least licensed, scepticism where it may not have been as significant. 
Before this, for example, the anti-vaxxer movement was limited to a genuinely nutty fringe. Libertarians, conspiracy peddlers, hippies, and a few of the kookier faith groups. Whereas now we seem to accept an anti-vaccine share of the population that could be as high as 1 in 5 or 20%. Leadership here, as in the climate debate, same-sex marriage, gender fairness, racial equality and other things, has been led often by corporates, by universities and by athletes and sports teams and the like, not so much by governments. Community, of course, is a multi-dimensional thing and my guest this week sees community thriving in Australia perhaps beneath government or in spite of government and politics. Damien Cave is the New York Times Australian Bureau Chief and is also the author of a fabulous new book called Into the Rip, How the Australian Way of Risk Made My Family Stronger, Happier and Even Less American, although I added the even there. Welcome to Democracy Sausage, Damien. Yes, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Now, we'll come back to US politics uh, in the second half, perhaps, but I'd like to get your off-the-cuff thoughts, if I, if, if I can, uh, just to the uh, departure of Gladys Berejiklian in, in New South Wales. I'm just interested, really, in how you viewed it in a kind of macro sense. I'm not asking for your um, you know, detailed historical expertise in New South Wales uh, in Macquarie Street politics or whatever, but, <laughs> but uh, I mean, we saw um, the governor of, of New York uh, recently uh, uh, replaced after a scandal. Um, you know, politicians, leaders go down from time to time for, for this or that, but this is a really kind of a sort of a, a strange one in a sense, you know, a highly popular premier, uh, a somewhat technical uh, s- set of circumstances in a way in relation to what she decided had eventually made her position untenable. I just wonder what, how you read it as, a, as someone who, uh, who looks at it with that um, more distant lens. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think I was really struck by the degree to which she is an anomaly in Australian politics. And to some extent, you know, you could argue across the Anglosphere of the democratic world where she resigned quickly and immediately, first of all, um, which nobody seems to be interested in doing these days. Um, yeah. and, and, second, and secondly, it does feel a bit arbitrary. I mean, here you have a country where there's all kinds of, I would argue, soft corruption in federal politics, where money flows in without really a whole lot of transparency, where grants go out to marginal communities that are for reasons that may or may not actually be justifiable. But no one is ever sacked or ever resigns for that. And so to some degree, she's this weird sort of absurd anomaly within the Australian political culture, it seems, in that she's actually leaving office for the whiff of an accusation. So it's both earlier and more extreme than what you see across the rest of the country, which is not to say it's wrong or right. It's just to say that it's so uneven the way Australia deals with money and grants and corruption. And so, you know, until that's fixed at a sort of national level, it seems like you're always going to have these examples where people are, are, are using kind of a, a, a gap of information to come up to their own conclusions. And, and, and that's probably the second thing that struck me is how much this is actually shaped by something I've written a lot about is Australia's culture of secrecy. There's still a lot that we don't know, both about what's happened here in this case with Gladys and the investigation, but more about what's happens around politics all over Australia. And so it just feels like a bit of an absurd kind of departure, especially at this time as the, as the state is about to enter this really important transition to kind of living with COVID. Yeah, it's interesting. Although that secrecy point is uh, is is quite germane here, because 
Uh, I agree with you, and I've I've read certainly some of the things you've written about the culture of secrecy. And as a journalist working in the in the press gallery for decades, I I um you know I've commented on that a lot myself. We, you know we would often say if we if we travelled with the PM or or um or went on any of those uh, embeds into Iraq or Afghanistan that you'd find more from um from American, Canadian, even British forces than you would find from the Australian Defence Force in terms of details. Uh, that, that, that there's a there is a culture of um, of hoarding information, of uh, withholding information, and and being essentially secret. But I think it's important here in the case of Gladys Berejiklian to note that um, it it was indeed personal secrecy in her case that is at the core of this. I mean, she chose not to disclose an intimate relationship that went on for years, and which was uh, at one stage, you know, were so serious that you know it may have, in her mind ended in marriage um no that's a very good uh, point i mean that's there's that's another layer of secrecy and perhaps she felt that she could get away with that because the broader culture allows for so much secrecy but regardless yes there's secrecy at the core of the problem too yeah and that secrecy was and this this may be her undoing because uh, I've made this point elsewhere, but you know, the, it, we, we often say in politics. I'm sure you've said it, observed it as a journalist as well. That it's often, you know, this is a kind of a post Watergate lesson. It's often the cover up that gets them. In this case, the cover up came first, and it was the cover up that enabled certain things to happen subsequently. Which, when they've come out, um, you know, you many of these things you would imagine would not have been possible had it been known. Uh, by the public, but also by her colleagues, that there was an intimate relationship there. It would have, uh, by public servants and so forth, that would have changed the way they looked at uh, potentially any representations that uh, Treasurer Berejiklian made in relation to Daryl Maguire and and the like. So, um, it's it's the cover up, that sort of preemptive cover up that uh, has, I think in the end, possibly. We'll see what comes out of the hearings, but it looks like that might be the uh, the undoing of Gladys Berejiklian. I think you're probably right. <laughs> Let's go to your book. I, uh, I haven't read it completely, I must admit, uh, having only just received it, but it is. Uh, I've read substantial sections of it and I'm very impressed with it. I'm very impressed with many of the observations you make about, I suppose, often making a comparison between, uh, between American an American culture, an American sense of risk, and the Australian one. And in many cases, the Australian uh, version comes up very favourably in your estimation. I wonder if you could just sort of encapsulate for us that that different metric of risk that you see between the American and the Australian one that you've come to to, uh, be familiar with now living here. Yeah, I mean, I think the lens that I ended up kind of looking at it through was the lens of a parent and the lens of somebody who'd moved to a to a new community. And what I found through programs like Nippers, but not just Nippers, just the way that sort of parenting culture and community culture works in Australia, is kind of imbued with a certain sense of optimism and a willingness to just have a crack at things. And whether it's for kids or adults, that reflects a taste for risk and a willingness to sort of see risk in context, to recognize that, well, along with the beautiful opportunities that come with the ocean and big waves and swimming with the fish, and is, is also the recognition that there are also sharks in that water. And you have to figure out how to gain the skills to sort of manage that. And the best way to do that is with the community. And so the things that I think sort of Australia's approach to risk at its best, and it's far from universal, but at its best, it's a combination of 
a seeking of joy, a willingness to sort of accept that there are dangers, even in, in wrapping with that joy, and to try and accomplish whatever skills are needed to, to master that situation with others. So it's kind of both community and an embrace of risk and a reflection of optimism that I found really inspiring and that frankly kind of, you know, I had to sort of learn how to deal with myself, even as someone who had been in risky situations as an adult, coming to Australia really challenged me as a parent and as a community member to try to do more. You say you found it inspiring. I also got a sense that you found it kind of liberating. It was almost like a, a letting go of some fears that weren't that they're almost like just sort of a resting level of fear that you could just essentially slough off and say, well, actually, this isn't that dangerous. There are ways of managing it, as you say, with the community and and um, and there's a lot of reward here. Would that be right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, I I think American parenting or at least the American parenting culture that I'd sort of come out of kind of elevates safety and risk avoidance to almost this sacred place where you're judged if you're not doing everything you can to protect your children and to help clear the way for them to make life as easy as possible for them. And I think in Australia, that it just sort of took away that pressure. It's such an intense amount of pressure that you're supposed to do that and made me remember that, you know, when you look at anything, it's not just the ocean, it's even something as grave as a pandemic. Most of the time, the probability is in your favor. Most of the time, things are going to turn out fine. And most people are going to live. And this is something that I learned covering the war in Iraq, but had sort of forgotten over time, you know, that there is ultimately more life than death, and that we should be living a life that sort of lives with that idea in mind. I'm interested in this idea of um, there being a community response as a way of managing the risk, such as uh, you know, life, surf lifesavers and others keeping an eye out using shark nets or whatever it might be and, and essentially minimising the risk that way. And I compare that to, say, American gun culture. It's often occurred to me that you know, some of the most um, boisterous defenders of, a, of American gun culture do so from a very kind of male frame it's almost like, uh, you know, the independence, uh, the right to bear arms, uh, the, the, the sort of right and almost responsibility to defend oneself, protect oneself, protect one's family. But another frame looking at that would say, well, that's, there's something quite cowardly about always having to carry a gun just to go to the supermarket. I wonder whether, whether you've thought about that as a, uh, a, a risk frame within not entirely across American culture, of course, but in certain parts of America, it's very strong, strongly the case. And I wonder whether you've thought about that. Is, is a, an assessment of risk there what drives or helps sustain gun culture in the United States? Well, I think that's probably a factor. I, I mean, I think for American culture generally, there's this obsession with the autonomous individual and this belief that that's the best model for absolutely everything from risk to you know, protection of your home, to how you deal with the virus. And I think to some degree, what I learned in coming to Australia is that that had gone too far. And you know, a lot of things that I sort of took for granted as an American, this idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and that you, know, you as an individual can conquer everything, it kind of made me realize how much of a myth that really is. And that to a certain degree, the, the best ways to deal with rest, the best, best ways to deal with fear, and there's you know, lots of psychological research that shows this is to be working with others. And that not only does that help us become braver, it also helps us feel happier and be more connected with other people. It's a more fulfilling life. And so to some degree, I think Americans have been kind of sold a false narrative for a long time, or they've just let it go so far 
that they've lost, you know, the ability to actually connect with others. Individualism is also a path to loneliness. And I think a lot of those people who, you know, who do become obsessed with their autonomous individualism are a lot lonelier than they want to admit. So, you know, you could call it cowardly. Um, I do think it, there's definitely a sense of, of, of kind of loneliness and a sort of misinterpretation of how risk actually works. There are a lot of problems that guns are not going to help you with. And, you know, if you're always looking to weapons as a solution, there are a whole lot of things that you're going to be vulnerable vulnerable with <laughs> that you're not even thinking about. So it's it's clearly a flawed methodology. Um, well, you kind of you kind of almost looking to if you're looking to guns as the as, you know to to being armed as the solution, then you, you're almost you know cutting straight to the dysfunction of a society rather than I think what you're getting at there is rather than looking at what 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 are the things that lead up to a situation where citizens need to carry arms to be protected from each other on an ongoing basis. That's a pretty fundamental question, isn't it? Right. And even, even the way that American history worked with the, the, the freedom to bear arms, it was less about the individual than it was about a group coming together to sort of fight injustice, right? And so again, they've just lost that entire group mentality. And, you know, this is a problem that's been happening in not just the United States, but in democratic societies for a long time. I mean, Robert Putnam's work around about bowling alone, you know, Australia suffers a degree of disconnection too, and the trend lines are heading in a similar direction. And that's partially why I wanted to write this book is to say, hey, listen, we need to cultivate this. You have to be careful and to not just let this die. You have to build it. And it's just that it's not as far gone in Australia, I think, as it is in the United States. And, and Americans, I think, haven't even yet recognized how far you know it's gone and what needs to be done to return. And Australians are still, I think, maybe living in a world where they know that they have these connections. They have a certain sense of solidarity, but maybe they haven't quite fully contemplated it as deeply as they might or tried to build on it. You know, I think there's a lot of things that you could take from surf lifesaving, from, you know, volunteer firefighting, from just the way community sport works and apply that to a lot of other policy sectors that it's simply not really in at this moment. Yeah, I was particularly moved actually by some of the depictions you wrote about of um, of country fire service volunteers in the Black Summer fires, particularly in the aftermath. Um, and it's it's interesting that you sort of uh, make the point as as others have made the obvious point in a sense uh, that this is the way things panned out chronologically. But we had the the twin calamities of the Black Summer fires and then the pandemic. And you say, uh, and I'm quoting you here, you say that required a wrenching public and private recalibration of how to interact with each other and with our surroundings in Australia. And I I wonder what you're getting at there. I mean, what I, the point that I'm trying to make is that with, with any big crisis of risk, whether it's climate change or, you know, a pandemic, our interconnected nature becomes suddenly very visible and apparent. You know, you, you either have a way of looking at the world that in some ways is epidemiological and that everything that I do affects someone else and that my freedom and my safety is deeply connected to the other people in my community and in my family or you have a view of I'm an individual and, and I'm a self-enclosed entity and I get to do whatever I want. I can purchase what I want. And to a certain extent, the economy is built on that idea. And so to me, these bigger risk problems thrust us back into a world where we're all connected in this web. And it forces us to really grapple with the fact that the actions of someone else affect us and that our actions affect others. And one of the things I read about in the book you know, which I think really sharpens the contrast between Australia and the United States is that 
throughout the pandemic, one of the things I heard again and again from people at the high end of society to the to the nurses to anyone is that I'm going to be careful because I just don't want to be the one to let everyone down. And that's just not something I heard very often in the United States. And it reflects a perspective and an understanding of the connectivity within a community. Yeah, I think it's a really important point. And and going back to one of your previous answers, it, it's a it's a really useful thing to do to sort of quantify that almost. And and I think to do so with the authority of someone who now lives here, but who did, who wasn't born here, and who can make these sorts of uh, objective sort of comparisons to actually quantify that level of community that perhaps Australians could be in danger of losing if they don't recognise that they have it in the first place and that it's in danger of eking away in, you know, against the threats of, of populism and polarisation of the media and a whole range of other processes that are going on. And it's also wealth and comfort. You know, one of the things that you see in the research globally is that as countries become wealthier and more comfortable, they're there's an increase in despair in depression and in disconnection. And so as we begin to sort of just become more comfortable and put convenience at the center of our lives, we lose track of these things that force us to interact with our community. And we lose track of risks and challenges that actually make us strongest. I mean, you know, one of the pieces of research that's in there too is this guy, Brock Bastian, who's a psychologist at the University of Melbourne, who did all this work around small doses of pain and how they bring people together. And, you know, it's hard sometimes to choose that. And we hate when it's thrust upon us, whether it's with a pandemic or war or something else. But the truth is, and he said this to me, he said, if you don't have any risk in your life, you actually need to find a way to seek it out. You need to find a way to build it into your life, preferably with others, because it will help you become a better human. Let's take a quick break just there. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. When we were talking about risk a moment ago and about uh, Australia's, uh, you know, levels of community, um, we, we often think of, of course, as, as we said, the, the Black Summer fires and then, the, and then the, the pandemic. Of course, the other thing that's running along right through this, and certainly in the case of the Black Summer fires, very relevant as well, is climate change. And that is a really interesting one because... In some ways, it feels to me like the pandemic sits between these two things, between climate change as a long-term existential threat. Then the pandemic comes along. Initially, it's seen as a very acute threat, and we see high levels of a focus by our state governments working with the federal government, as I said in the introduction, with the national cabinet. We see Australians very happy to see their politicians engaged in 
problem solving rather than the normal cut and thrust of politics and the like. And and so that's all, all well and good. But we've now been at this for, you know, we're coming up for two years uh, at the end of this year that we, you know, we'll be, we'll be sort of in this. I wonder whether that is, it, is in of itself a problem, that it's hard to stay at emergency levels of concern for a long time. And so what we've seen through 2021 is much more kind of um, fracturing, I think. Uh, we've seen fracturing in the media. We've seen fracturing in the national cabinet. We've seen divergences in politics. We've seen the, you know, the riots in Melbourne and other places, um, anti-vaccination uh, protests and the like. Um, I wonder whether this is kind of inevitable that you can't, as I say, stay at kind of action stations uh, ready for attack on a permanent basis. And this has gone on for so long that it really is testing some of uh, some of our community resolve. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's clear that there is some fracturing and there. And there's, you know, psychological research to to help explain this, too. There's something that we have called the finite pool of worry, which says that, you know, as humans, we're only able to really be super worried for so long before we feel the need to sort of move on. And, you know, for evolutionary reasons, that makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of reasons like that. If you look deep at our sort of evolutionary core, that would explain why there's some fracturing going on. You know, that said, I would argue that a lot of the fracturing is at the political level and at the societal level, as you said at the beginning, below that, it's still pretty, pretty tight together. I mean, in Western Sydney, you know, which was an area that had very, very low vaccination rates, at the beginning of the outbreak here, you know, they're now over 95% for first doses. And so that community came together and made, and, and I know a bunch of people in that community did it, you know, by going door to door, by working the local community. And so, you know, there are still lots of reasons for optimism. The fact that Australia has been able to hold together as much as it has after two years of this pandemic, I think is a real testament to the strength of the community bonds that are still in existence. And I've sensed from some of the things you've said and written that you think that we've been too down on ourselves uh, for some of the mistakes and dysfunction that has occurred. Well, I do. I think Australians are very good at knocking themselves down, and I, I greatly admire the humility that comes from that. I think Americans could probably learn a bit from that too. But but I do think there's a, a myopia to that as well. And I think Australia has to sort of figure out a way sometimes to recognize its strengths so that it can build on them. Uh, as opposed to only focusing on the negatives. I think sometimes there's a tendency in, in, in media and in, in public life to really focus on minuscule flaws and failures without really being able to see the broader context. And I think sometimes it's it's a little bit too much of a focus on politics as opposed to the people in the communities. Yes, and as you say, in Western Sydney, for example, it's it's using those uh, that that community fabric that's there in those areas of Sydney that really that was the way to get to people and to uh, and to drive up those uh, that, that vaccination uptake. I wonder about vaccine hesitancy in in general, though. Um, you've you've covered some of this in the book in terms of um, the way the, the sort of psychological research about how to motivate people, and it isn't through you, you say, and you cite experts here, uh, through negative messaging so much as positive messaging. Yeah, that's right. I mean, shame and regret just don't work as well. And, and fear doesn't work as well as trying to get people to feel like they're joining something positive. And so, you know, Australia has the possibility and the potential to really take advantage of that because they do have those community bonds. But politicians often veer toward fear as opposed to optimism. And, and the policy research clearly shows that that's actually not what works best. Yeah. And 
I think it's important though to say here that what's been missing. Uh, I mean, often one of the comparisons is the one made with the H- the emergence of HIV in the early 1980s, for example, and you know the famous uh, Grim Reaper ads and and the like. Uh, now they they were pretty scary, but nonetheless they you know they had a they had a certainly a, a shock effect in that uh, in that immediate sense. Um, what's been missing here, right throughout this, and arguably is still missing, has been that really strong positive messaging about vaccination as a sort of a patriotic duty, as a nation building, a community building duty. Now, it's all you know. We, you know, some people might say it's churlish to keep mentioning this, but it's really quite fundamental. The reason it's been missing is because of the supply problem, and the government could not really put out strong messages encouraging uptake, encouraging that sense, you know, that we might have seen during the war. You know, the the uh, your country needs you kind of Uncle Sam needs you in the US or whatever it might be. We cu- we couldn't have that kind of messaging because the government could not be seen to be driving up demand when there was inadequate supply, particularly because inadequate supply was so easily tagged to the government's performance in the second half of 2020. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's really hard for the government to say, hey, let's all do this together and work as a nation when they've actually failed the nation by failing to get enough vaccines in the first place. So it's a pretty hard argument to make. But it is interesting. I mean, I do hear it at the community level. There was a, a guy, a basketball coach who I know in Western Sydney, who uh, was trying to persuade people who were hesitant in his community, in the South Sudanese community. And he said he kept telling them, listen, you have to do this because our elders are going to get sick and die. You have to do it for the older people in your families and in your community. And so he drilled it down to a very local level and it worked remarkably well. And so I do think even while at the national level, you know, there is, to quote Donald Horn, a lot of mediocrity (laughs) there at at the sort of much more local level, a lot of people are doing that. Now, let's, uh, let's, Go to your country of origin, America. I wonder if we can, if I can uh, pick your brain about uh, what your feeling is about the performance of the Biden administration. Uh, I mean, it's still relatively early days, but uh, there's already, of course, a lot of talk about the midterms and, you know, Donald Trump's presence looms large over the political scene. Um, How do you think uh, the the, the Biden administration is going generally? What, What struck you? Well, I mean, the, the two things that strike me about where the United States is at right now is, is one, the public is just so fatigued with political battles and so tired after four years of Donald Trump, no matter where you are on the political spectrum. And so a lot of people, I think, are just kind of checking out a bit. And what what that does is it makes it even harder for Joe Biden, I think, to sort of bring the country back to where it needs to be in terms of some sense of unity and, and trying to accomplish things. And you know, unfortunately, I think what you're seeing in his difficulty of getting things passed and of actually making headway is that Trump really was, you know, a symptom of a, of a much deeper problem in American political life as opposed to the cause. He may have amplified it. He probably made it worse in a lot of ways in terms of the divisions. But the reality is that America is in a really tough spot where there's just so much division and so much rancor and so much anger on the, on the partisanship that it's really hard for anyone to get anything done. And so to some degree, no matter who Joe Biden was, no matter who was president, they would have an extremely difficult road ahead of them. And I think that's what's happened. He's been able to get some things done, um, but there's still a lot more in his agenda that is frankly, you know, teetering on a knife's edge as to whether it will get passed or not. Yes. Well, one of these things is, of course, made, well, all of these things are made more difficult by 
in a sense, recalcitrance in his own side. I mean, we, you know, uh, we, we, I think most of the world looked with relief at the dispatch of uh, of Donald Trump at the election last year. But then, of course, uh, there was that runoff in Georgia, and uh, amazingly, the Democrats achieved that that uh, equilibrium in the Senate, giving giving the vice president the uh, the, the casting vote. Uh, this theoretically enables the, the 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 new administration to go forth and uh, in, enact its program but um there are some pretty key people who are standing in the way i'm thinking of senders kristen sanima if that's the correct pronunciation from arizona and joe manchin from west virginia these these two uh, democrats are making things pretty hard for the biden administration yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, part of it is American politics allows, again, you see it in, in politics too, for more individualism. Even among, you know, the elected officials, there's not necessarily the same demand for party loyalty as there is in a system like Australia's. And so you, you see that, you know, you may have the label Democrat, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's always how you're going to vote and you've got your own self-interest. And in both of their cases, you know, they have stakeholders who are pushing them in one direction. You know, Manchin has family money and coal, which makes him, you know, really difficult in anything related to climate change. Sunima is getting lobbied by all kinds of people that, you know, she has personal benefits that will come from her kind of being a, a stick in the mud for Biden's agenda. And so, you know, it's a pretty complicated dynamic in part because it is so damn close, you know, like the vote. Yeah, they got the Senate, but barely. And, you know, the country is still very much a sort of 51% to 49% country with every election. And it just makes it almost impossible to get anything done. And we're learning more about the events of January 6th, which seems like an eternity ago, but with Bob Woodward's uh, latest book, Peril, uh, revelations that uh, there was more planning, more more kind of awareness of, of what was going on in the lead up to the siege of the Capitol on January 6th. It's um, uh, Donald Trump remains this this you know powerful figure and i i read uh, jonathan swan uh, the emmy award winning jo- jonathan swan with yeah. whom i used to work and who's been on this podcast as well and who did that amazing interview with donald trump uh, some time ago uh, he was making the point that anyone who thinks trump isn't around for 2024 isn't reading the same polls he is and i guess we should shouldn't be really that surprised about that he he um he scored what 74 75 million votes uh at the election yeah, I mean, there's just no, and, and even if he wasn't around as a candidate, he's around as a force and the ideas for which he stands, a lot of people still believe in. And so, you know, that's the thing that I keep asking, and I feel like the world is asking this of America, and not just America, but at what point do the world's greatest democracies recognize that they need to stand up and improve themselves, that you can't just assume that it's all going to work out fine? You know, I think this is a really important inflection point for all of the world's democracies to figure out how to put your best foot forward, to sort of get out of the political battle zone and really start to connect a little bit more with people. You know, there's a battle for ideas all around the world. There's a battle for competence and democracies are simply not proving that they're competent. And that's being the United States is at the top of that list. And a sense from something you said before in terms of community and, and, and uh, being being conscious of the community structures that we have here, that you think that Australia is on a path to some extent towards where America is? Yeah, if it's not careful, I think some of these same forces of division, forces of social media and, you know, forces of just loneliness, you know, have the potential to push the society apart. You know, entropy is a powerful thing. And I think that this, this sort of drifting apart is, 
is, is kind of natural in a lot of wealthy Western and, and democratic countries. But I do think that the solution really is something as small as, you know, starting with your community and stretching yourself beyond your comfort zone with people you know and people you don't know to try and make your little patch of earth a better place. Like, I, I really believe that if you look at sort of the history of something like surf lifesaving or the history of volunteer firefighting, these were people who were coming together and almost like democratic insurgents trying to build institutions to fill gaps that government was not filling. And I wonder sometimes if that's not what the 21st century requires. You know, this happened during a period um, when there was a lot of sort of, you know, new things forming at the turn of the 20th century and, and earlier. And so maybe we're in another moment where instead of trying to create an app company or create a startup that will make $10 million, maybe it would be great if people tried to create startup institutions, you know, and try to figure out ways to kind of build community, because that's that to some extent is what I think is probably needed to revive democracy. Of course, the big difference between now and, and previous times is the internet and social media in particular, but also I think partisan media. I mean, we've always had right-wing tabloids, for example, um, uh, you know, yellow journalism, as it was called back in the turn of the last century. Um, but these strongly partisan broadcast media are, are incredible enablers. And going back to where we really started this discussion, talking about Berejiklian, although Berejiklian herself is not a good example of this, but uh, what I've witnessed, I'm sure you've seen the same thing, is where politicians have powerful media barrackers, they can survive almost anything. And Trump was a good example of this. Even the most you know, clear-cut cases of, of corruption, malfeasance, poor moral behaviour, whatever, can be survived if you have people in your corner plugging your narrative and indeed positioning other media doing their jobs, other journalists doing their jobs as journalists. Those partisan media can position the legitimate media as essentially partisans also, as being advocates for the other side, as it were. And so this, this, the whole game then sort of starts to to fall apart. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Because Australia obviously has a growing partisan media market. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's a, you know the combination of a partisan media market that then is amplified by the outrage machine of social media is a really dangerous thing. And you know, one of the things that I think I was reflecting on a lot as I was doing this book is the importance of actually moving away from media and moving back into real life where the conversations that you're having are not necessarily as driven by what you're clicking on, where you might not know the politics of the person you're with, but maybe you find other ways to respect them and other ways to connect with them. And, and, and unless, we, unless we build those bonds, we're really at risk of being pushed only in the direction of media. I mean, we're in this strange moment, and me as a journalist, it feels strange to say it, but I almost feel like we've had too much communication and that we've come to rely too heavily on words and not enough on actions and I feel like that's one of the shifts that, you know, needs to happen to make things healthier. We all probably need to tune off a bit more and get out in the world. Yes, it's a, <laughs> it's a bit hard for me to say as well as a, as a journalist of uh, some time as well. So, uh, look, um, it's been really terrific, Damien, having you on there. Look, just before we go, can I just ask you to tell the story about, because uh, I just thought it, it, it was such a lovely uh, little anecdote uh, that's in your book about when you got a flat tyre when you were covering the bushfires. <laughs> yeah, no, it totally encapsulated for me a bit of what makes Australia such a wonderful place. I was coming away from an area where a bunch of firefighters were clearing a path to try and create 
a place where the fire would stop. We could see smoke in the distance. And the photographer and I were, were speeding out of that area, trying to get to another spot where the fires were. And, you know, we heard this thump, thump, thump on his Hilux and, and looked out the window. And of course, we had this giant flat. And we're in the middle of nowhere. There's just fields everywhere. It's, there's, there's really nothing but grass that can burn up really quickly. And we pull over and within a few seconds, a car drives by, an older couple in an SUV packed with, with luggage, probably fleeing their own property and stop to make sure we're okay. And then, you know, while I tell them, oh, we were, our jack is too small, two other cars stop to make sure we're okay. And then a truck filled with these giant trees, these giant logging truck stops and, and the driver jumps out and he's covered in tattoos and he just goes to work and takes our little jack, props it up and changes our tire before we even know what's going on even as two other cars pull over to make sure we're okay. And so, you know, the thing that I found really striking about that experience was not that someone stopped to try and check on us. It's that everyone stopped. Every single person who passed by felt a responsibility to make sure we were okay. And, you know, it's one of those memories that I hold really dear about my time in Australia. And like I said, I think there's a lot to be learned from that kind of model. When I read that, I, um, I really liked the way you wrote it and I read it out to my wife and, um, and I, but then I showed it her on the page because it was actually the way you finished off that anecdote when you said how the, every, you know all these different people stopped every car that came past and then you did it with three full stops every single one and uh, it 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 really um, I th- it was very powerful because I could tell you were making the point that whilst that may have happened in in uh, in America. It may not have either. You know, it may have been that every single one drove past, or one person stopped, or no one stopped. Yeah, and just that that st- that st- that high standard of kindness and looking out for another. You know, it's something that maybe we, we take for granted if we if it, if you don't have if it doesn't something you grow up with. But you know, in an intense moment, you know, we weren't in huge danger. The fires weren't so so close that people needed to do that. They could have very easily driven by, and and they didn't. And I'm very grateful for that. And it's a, ref- a very a good reflection, I think, on high levels of, of that kind of community spirit, particularly in the country, in, in, the, in the regions. Uh, and I think we should acknowledge that. Absolutely. Uh, Damien Cave, congratulations on the book, Into the Rip, How the Australian Way of Risk Made My Family Stronger, Happier and Less American. It is really a, a terrific read. I, I've, I've very much enjoyed reading it. And it's also a very lovely portrait, I think, in places of living in the part of Sydney you live in and going to Bronte, the, the beach there in the Inner East. And, and um, it, it's a particularly evocative portrait, I think, of, of, of that life and of early mornings down at the beach and, and, and those kinds of things. So um, I'd strongly advocate it to readers. Thanks, Damien. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. Now, as you know, Democracy Sausage comes out each Tuesday with the support of the Crawford School of Public Policy, the College of Arts and Social Sciences, and the School of Politics and International Relations at ANU. Uh, so uh, look out for the next one. Until next week, bye for now. <laughs>